The title of this morning's talk is Emptying Hand in Hand. You might remember yesterday's talk was about the unadulterated view that becomes available to each one of us when we empty our minds. Today, I'll examine what can become available when the emptying is not just an individual process, but a collective one. When all of us in the collective of like-minded people take part hand in hand in clearing the space we inhabit. Not surely not that this is an easy thing to do. And yet it's still much more problematic to continue to live trapped in the status quo with all this clutter. Some of the clutter generated by our own egos, others by the egos of other people around us, others by the egos of corporations capable of controlling the public space. So, all this needs to be emptied, at least in, in just we have to create some clearing, some space, cleared space within all that clutter. How can we accomplish this? I believe that we can only start to empty the collective mind after we have begun to do so with our own because our own mind is the only one over which we can directly apply our wisdom. This emptying of our mind needs to start in solitude, away from the intrusiveness of the world. We need to take a break from the intensive interactions that we are subject to in the world and come to some form of the retreat as we have done this weekend to a situation when among other things many other things we're not surrounded by an audience that we've got to be trying to impress all the time symbolic of this practice of isolation is the leaving of the shoes outside the hall, which is a reminder, symbolic reminder, of course, of leaving the world outside as well, preventing the world, as it were, from directly intruding into our practice. Then, being in solitude, we can begin the process of emptying our own minds, a process that I examined in the previous Dharma talks. And then, only then, 
having created some clearing within ourselves, we may, by the same token, also get enough traction to begin to clear the mental space we share with others. So the shared space, the shared clearing, sorry, is bound to create a shared space of like-mindedness that is clear. Not, not a, not clear in the sense of like-mindedness, like-mindedness, in the sense of always agreeing. Of course not. But in the sense that the separation between you and me does not compute in that space. It's a space that belongs to no one. Let me consider more concretely this shared space in its various forms, in a few of its various forms, starting with one-to-one relationships. I'll illustrate those relationships, which of course I have many, very categories, just not to talk too much. <laughs> I'll illustrate it with the case of a particular partnership in, between a man and a woman in, in marriage or equivalent. In such relationships, like in any relationship, we are bound to experience both obstacles and openings. Let me examine some of those, starting with the obstacles. One of the most pervasive obstacles occurs when one partner develops a sense of ownership over the relationship itself or over the other partner. Often in the traditional cultures it's the husband who feels he owns the wife. His wife. The intensity of this sense of ownership varies from culture to culture. But I've picked it up different degrees, of course, in all the cultures I've known. The other side of the coin in the traditional partnerships, again, is the tendency of the wife to attach herself to her husband's image and become co-owner of his success. Just, Just to illustrate couple of examples, really, not to, to exhaust the possibility. Like any therapist knows very well, there's, I mean, scanning these possibilities can take ages. There are many variations. But what matters here is that this sense of ownership is just the tip of the iceberg. The iceberg itself, that's the ego, the self. 
that is what gets on the way of connectedness. At the other end of the spectrum, there is a possibility of having a one-to-one relationship open to whatever emerges at each moment with no string attached, with no preconceptions of how things ought to be. A relationship in which both partners feel free to explore the interplay, the synergy, their ability to collaborate, and sometimes ability to not collaborate. Free to relate freshly, freshly at each moment without residues, without judgments. Life can become a dance in which the two partners together improvise. Success is not an issue, neither is perfection. The issue is being free to be as they, we, truly are. All very simplified, of course, but that's the thrust of what I'm trying to say. Let us now take a look at our relationship with the Sangha. Being us all inspired by the Buddhist teachings, we know that there is no room in our relationship for the ego to interfere. The ego has no place. When we dance and not literally, although we could dance literally too, but at least uh, uh, metaphorically, when we dance together, it's as if we're doing a country dance, a jig, taking over this dance floor, but a jig that is not choreographed in any way. It's improvisational. As our inquiry periods have demonstrated. As Julie illustrated for just one dancer. Maybe, maybe someday we could explore (laughs) creating actually a a real dance among ourselves and bumping into each other and and, uh, playing with each other and discovering those extraordinary moments when we might be in tune. I have never done it. I don't know how it would work. We can dance freely because we have put aside the obstacles emerging from our habitual attachments to success, to whatever. And because we have learned to appreciate the freedom that results from allowing ourselves to become vulnerable. 
as Louise demonstrated in her talk earlier. We, we open up a space where we can jointly examine whatever litter we have generated, and we do generate a lot of litter, I must say, individually and collectively. <coughs> and having examined this litter wisely, we can decide whether to discard it, no good, compost it, or recycle it. <laughs> Learning to do such a jig in a room full of light-minded people is a powerful rehearsal. I mean, a, 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 a metaphorical jig I'm talking about. In a room full of like-minded people is a powerful rehearsal for doing likewise for the far more exacting, demanding arena of the world at large. There. Our collaboration is so much more difficult. In the world, the presumption that we are surrounded by like-minded people doesn't apply. On the contrary, we tend to assume that the world is in contention with us <coughs> and us with it. And this assumption, whatever its validity, by itself contributes to our estrangement, to our isolation from each other. On Friday in my talk, I illustrated this assumption by a quote, with a quote from a movie I briefly saw on the TV screen, in which a mother of a young daughter was telling her that, quote, life is a battlefield. We have to fight for what we want. Very clear. We, we presume contention, and obviously contention is what we get. And all this dovetails with the polarities of what the Buddha called the eight worldly condition that I already discussed in previous talks this weekend. Let me recap them briefly. The eight worldly condition consists of four pairs of polarity. And they encroach our dealings with the world. The polarities are profit and loss, loss, profit and loss, success and failure, praise and blame, pleasure and pain. For each of those pairs, our minds focuses often obsessively on pushing away one option, loss, failure, blame and pain, and attaching, attaching to the alternative profit, success, praise, and pleasure. And all this push and pull has, as a result, the magnification of me.
Interestingly enough, we can easily fall for the eight worldly conditions regardless of our professed morality. <coughs> Let me illustrate what I'm saying with an actual story which I recently read in some publication. It's a real story. I've forgotten where I read it. Um, the author reports that after having performed a tricky maneuver while driving, he noticed that the driver in the car next to him was giving him the finger. <laughs> I'm sure you have, many of you have experienced <laughs> that. It's not an unusual experience. But the unusual thing is that as this finger-giving driver speeded ahead, the author of the article saw a bumper sticker on the other guy's car, which said, war is not the answer. (laughs) 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 And so, even when we might be inspired by a formal code of moral rectitude, the pull of the eight worldly conditions can overwhelm us and make us complicit in fracturing fracturing the world into me versus you, us versus them. And in that world, we are forever giving each other the finger. And forever there is no room for intimacy. Is that the best we can do? Obviously not. Particularly if you have learned, have experienced the gift of intimacy and connectedness in the company of like-minded people, either in a one-to-one relationship or in a small group relationship or in in a relationship like the one with the Sangha. True, as we explore our intimacy, we are bound, in, in this larger context, we are bound to run into different patterns of thought and behavior, even, for sure, different political allegiances. But why should difference be a barrier to intimacy. In fact, the social fabric is not undermined but enriched by diversity. And the cross-fertilization of ideas, much like the cross-fertilization in agriculture, more often than not, leads to hybrid vigor. Of course, when there's fertilization (laughs) and not contention. Furthermore, when we go beyond the surface of our individual personalities, we come 
in contact with a felt sense that brings to us echoes of the whole world and certainly echoes of those who are close to us. In fact, even we can pick up echoes of diversity within ourselves because we, each one of us, has many parts and these parts can resonate in us as well. And then we can extend this openness to resonance to the world at large if and when we can put aside the, in, the, the fortress of the me and mine and become capable of resonating with whoever we come in contact with. Of course, the other person has to collaborate, sure, but sometimes if we initiate a, a, a relationship, the relationship develops, <coughs> just as we, when we initiate contention, the contention freezes us away. And there, there's a resonance with the earth at large, with nature at large. Indigenous communities, as you probably all know, see the earth as our mother. We call it Mother Earth, Mother Earth, Pachamama in indigenous languages in Latin America. In fact, it can be argued that our relationship with the earth is far more intimate than with our mother. In fact, you know, we are connected to our mother, of course, by an umbilical cord but eventually it gets cut. Our umbilical cord with the earth is never cut. We cannot cut it. The, that's a cord that keeps the air flowing through, flowing through our lungs, that keeps food and water flowing through our digestive system. If we cut it, we die. And when we die, it's we who fertilize the earth. It's in our bodies that uh, the worms will grow and, and again <coughs> do the ecological work. Or, or our ashes will be fertilizer for the ground as well. So there's all kinds of benefits from connectedness and creating an open empty space together so that our various aspects can arise and flourish and, 
and then be discarded, or recycled, or whatever, when they're not useful anymore. Still, a, a question that I need to address now is, is our intimate relationship with the world and with earth and with others sustainable? To put it in other words, is love sustainable? Absolutely. The only thing that's non-sustainable is our habitual competitiveness which more often than not degenerates in outright war. Love, on the other hand, is indeed sustainable. It resonates back and forth from each of us to the rest of the world, from the rest of the world to each of us. Love is sustainable. It heals the separation between what happens inside me and what happens outside. It deters the scalpel of money and ownership and others, of course, and political opinions from disjoining us. Love is sustainable. Thanks to it, what happens in the world reverberates inside me and what happens inside me reverberates in the world. Sri Nisargadatta, Advaita Vedanta teacher that I've already quoted in these talks, and whose teachings are recorded in a volume entitled I Am That, famously said, and it's recorded in that volume, Love says I'm everything. Wisdom says I'm nothing. Between the two, my life flows. When I first ran into this quote, it had a tremendous impact on me. It, it really guided my response to many things. More recently, I prefer to take that quote and turn it around in order and Say instead, wisdom saying I'm nothing. Love says I'm everything. Between the two, my life flows. There hardly seems to be a difference. It's the only difference that I perceive is that I put the realization of being nothing first. In other words, I start with an empty slate. And then, having come to understand 
that I'm nothing, nothing separate, that is, that's what nothing means, I'm nothing separate, I make room for love to emerge and spread. And as it spreads, it finds its niche in the minds of others as well. And it resonates. It echoes back. And thus, being nothing makes room for becoming everything. Let's take a few minutes to sit in silence. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.